0: Um, as you kind of think about today and you think about our culture, how many of you, and I want you just to kind of think in your own mind, kind of internally, have just kind of gone, man, our culture's gone to hell in a handbasket real quick. How many of us feel hopeless within our culture or even afraid of our culture? Well, Jesus actually in our passage this morning doesn't move with fear. He moves with intentionality. He doesn't see the taintedness of the world as a barrier to His investment. He doesn't see the taintedness of the world as a hindrance to His investment But rather, Jesus engages with his culture. Not the nice parts of the culture or those who are most respected, but he deals with the most defamed. He deals with the most defiled. And he deals with the outcasts. And what we're going to see this morning as we continue in the Gospel of Luke is that this Jesus that we serve doesn't call us to avoid our culture, but rather to engage with it. He simply says, don't become like it, but be in it and love those who are in it. More than that, he says, be with them. And the call Is one that is directed towards us. As Christians today, we can feel like, well, it's hostile to Christians, therefore we ought to avoid the very culture in which God has called us to be. And yet, not all is lost, not all is gone. In fact, we know who the winner is. And we know the one who heals the sick condition of sin. And that is Jesus. And so my hope this morning as we dive into our text is that we would be reinvigorated to engage with our culture rather than be afraid of it. That we would be followers of Christ, not Pharisees, of protection. So let's go ahead and dive into our text this morning. It's a text that some of you are familiar with. For others, you may be hearing it for the first time. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. Let's go ahead and stand as we we read this together. And this is what it says. It says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, "The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink." And Jesus said to them, "Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away with them from them, and then they will fast in those days." He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Father, may it be for us this morning that we see you as the new way. That God, that we don't desire the old way and simply ignore the new, saying that the old is good, seeking to appease our flesh and look for fleshly measure, measures of our faith. God, may we be rejuvenated and rejoice. Over the salvation that you bring through Jesus, through him, and through his work. Father, strengthen us today in your text and your word. Penetrate into our hearts this morning. Move me aside. You come forth, Lord, and may it be your word in your power. May we hear, God, with ears that you've given us, and may we see with eyes that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for coming to us. And thank you, Lord, for offering us redemption. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, Jesus calls us to follow him As the new and only way. Jesus calls us to follow him as the new and only way. That's the heart of this passage, is that Jesus is calling us to follow him as the new and only way. We're to follow the new way. Our flesh cries out for law, our flesh cries out for a reasonable response. Our own self-sufficiency, he says, you ought to be able to do this on your own. You ought to be able to come righteous on your own. You ought to be able to please God on your own. But when Jesus comes, he puts that all to rest. You see, Jesus has just called Peter, James, and John, as we saw last week, who were fishermen. And he called them to be catchers of men. And if you recall... They had caught nothing in the night. They were discouraged. And Jesus then tells them to drop their nets in. Peter says to him, Are you sure, Lord? Like we toiled all night, but I will do this, I will obey. And he casts the net in, and the nets are overflowing with fish. Peter didn't provide the fish, Peter didn't save the fish. Peter was just called to capture the fish, to be faithful and obedient. Jesus gave the supply. He's the one that brought the fish to be put into the net. He even directed them into the net. All Peter was asked to do was to obey and to pull the nets up. Now, following that Jesus heals a leper. He shows us his cleansing power. The power to cleanse us of sin and the guilt and shame of sin. And he heals the paralytic. Both his cleansing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic show him, demonstrate, reveal him as the Messiah. And we're told that it testified to the fact that He truly was the Son of Man. If you recall for a moment as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, Matthew is writing, when he writes his Gospel, to reveal that Jesus is the promised King. Mark writes so that we might see that Jesus is a servant of God. Luke writes so that we might know that He is the Savior, the Son of Man. And so Luke is writing here to show us that Jesus is truly our Savior, the promised Savior of God, not simply to the Jew, but to the Gentile too, to all mankind. And so he showed himself to be the Messiah. And his ministry then continues, as we're told in our passage this morning, after this he went... Out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. Now, this was scandalous. None of us like tax collectors. We don't really necessarily like tax collectors as much as we don't like taxes, right? I don't know of anybody that rejoices over taxes. I don't even care what your political persuasion is. Nobody likes them. I mean, the term that we use at times is their necessary evil. And then sometimes we call them necessary waste, right? We feel like somebody's robbing us. Well, the tax collectors in Rome at this time were robbers. They were thieves. They were considered traitors, especially those that were Jews who were working against the Jewish people on behalf of the Roman government. They had the backing of the Roman army and commonly extorted money from the Jewish people. And, and what would happen is, is that tax collectors would go and give a bid to the Roman government and say, this is how much money I can collect on behalf of the people. And the one who gave the highest bid, now their life was given as the essentially the backing of this bid, the collateral for the bid, but they gave this bid to the Roman government And then the Roman government would take the highest bid and the tax collector had to come through on that deal or they would suffer severe punishment. So the way that the tax collectors made money was they extorted it from those individuals. They took the amount that was allotted for the government and then they charged over that amount so they would have money for themselves. In fact, if you were a Jew who was a tax collector in the Roman government at that time, you would no longer be allowed to attend synagogue. You could no longer serve on judicial courts. You were disowned by your family. And in the process of being disowned by your family, your family was also disgraced. And the only reason to be a tax collector was that you could have the cover and safety of a foreign government. This Roman government. And so this invitation to Levi is shocking. Those around are probably standing by going, Jesus, you just invited these fishermen to follow you. I kind of get that. They're hard workers, but they're not like the other rabbis who invite others who are educated and well-spoken. And now, though, Jesus, this is interesting. You're inviting a tax collector? Now, Levi, who we will later know as Matthew, the disciple, Levi does just that. He sees the nature of his condition, and we're told here That leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now you can imagine Levi in that moment, right? Jesus walking by, this rabbi walking by, and what he must have thought was that Jesus was going to turn and rebuke him. But instead, Jesus doesn't turn and rebuke him, he invites him, he calls him. This Jesus that we have was not in the business of shunning sinners, but of loving sinners. And so he leaves everything, and he rises and follows him. Now, the word follow him in Greek actually is unique here. It's the word akalethu, and it's a word that is actually in the indicative imperfect tense, which means it's ongoing. So it's kind of better translated that he was and is following him. It meant that Levi left and he didn't just go after him like he was trailing after a dog after its master. It's that this became his life, both past tense and present tense. He was and is following Jesus He gave up everything. Now think about the sacrifice on the part of Levi here. Levi had financial security. He actually had physical security. There were those that might have tried to harm him, but he had the protection of the Roman army. Anybody who would come against him as a tax collector, they themselves would have their life put in jeopardy. But now by leaving this position... He was not only not liked by Jews, but he was no longer liked by Romans. He really was despised by everyone to follow Jesus. You see, the call on Levi's life here was one that was radical. It called him to leave everything that he knew and every ounce of security to find his security in everything he knew in Jesus. Well, verse 29 and 30 tells us what Levi does. Levi doesn't look backward and go, man, that cost us a lot. I mean, in reality, think about us. We're in a culture that's marked by comfort As a nation, we're very affluent. When God calls us to do things, there are times that we can even be annoyed when He asks too much of us. Lay down your lust. Lay down your gossip. Lay down your critical spirit. Lay down your perception of contentment. Lay down those things you find hope in, and find it all in me. That's what Levi does. He lays down everything that he has known, every ounce of security, every ounce of comfort, and he now follows Jesus. And we're told, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors, others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So what does Levi do? He immediately celebrates, he doesn't see his sacrifice as a burden but as a celebration. He invites other sinners into the presence of Jesus. He wants the other sinners to experience what he is experiencing. Do we feel the same way? I mean, I think intellectually we often do. Intellectually we go, yeah, we want sinners to experience what we have. But in reality, we want to Ignore or we want to avoid the vulnerability that comes with calling sinners to the same table with us in the presence of Christ. It's risky. Feels that way. And yet, Levi invites his friends and says, I want you to experience what I have. I want you to experience this one who has called you. He will call you in the same way that he has called me. You see, following Christ in our lives calls us to his mission. Bringing glory to God through the salvation of mankind, he calls us into his mission. I think subtly sometimes what happens in us is we kind of go, Well, I got mine. And we lose our passion for the mission of Jesus. If you're finding in your own heart and mind of like, I'm just not good at evangelism and so I'm not going to do it. Or I don't really feel called to that. Then you're not experiencing the glory of God the way that he wants you to. You're missing the fact that your call into his life and following him is a call of submission to him in all aspects of your life. Including the mission that he's called you to. He's called you as the representative of his presence into the life of unbelievers. He's called you to righteousness in your life so that they might be able to see life changed. It's not just a sprinkling of Jesus, it's not just an add on. It's not like a web browser that you just attach to your your search engine. Jesus is saying, I want all of you. And I've called you into my mission, into my work. And so following Christ in our lives calls us to his mission. The Pharisees, on the other hand, They questioned his mere fellowship with sinners. See, they saw this as an affirmation of a person's sin. You see, the Pharisees themselves didn't hang out with sinners because they thought that it tainted them, it made them unclean. They thought that a person would become unclean and spiritually impure just by being in the mere presence of an unbeliever. Philip Grand Riken makes this observation that there's more than a little of the spirit of the Pharisees in all of us. It's tempting for us to have a critical spirit about the way other people live, saying, well, that's just not what Christians are supposed to do. And it's tempting to become so attached to our particular style of Christianity that we never introduce Jesus to the people outside who need him the most. But we are not called to stand somewhere off with the Pharisees. We're called to sit down with sinners so that we can share the gospel. We're to have people in our life who don't know Jesus. We're not to be separate from the culture. Our families are not to be separate from the culture. The Scripture doesn't say, hey, protect your children from the culture. It says shepherd them through it. Teach them the ways of the Lord so that they might, what, hold fast. It doesn't mean that we just throw our our families to the wolves. It doesn't mean that we throw ourselves to the wolves, but it does mean that we are intentional about stepping into relationship with those who don't know Jesus. One of the reasons that we have as a core value as our church is simplicity, doing only those things that enhance the purpose and mission that God's given us as a church, is so that we don't overburden us with activities, Christian activities which prevent us from engaging in fellowship with unbelievers. In the same way that we take time with believers and having fellowship with believers on a weekly basis, we should be intentional about having fellowship with unbelievers. Relating with them, letting them see Jesus in us. And what that doesn't look like is us joining them in their sin. However, Sometimes it means that they may be in sin and we may be near. For example, inviting the neighbor couple over to your house for dinner who lives together but are not married. Does that sin prevent you? Or do you take it as an opportunity to invite them into your home? And if you have children, say, yeah, you know what? We don't believe that that's God's way. But God hasn't yet worked in their lives in that way and that's okay right now our call is that they might experience jesus in us and that we might proclaim that truth have the opportunity to share that truth you see otherwise we become like the pharisees where we avoid the world in hopes that we don't become unclean See, the Pharisees, it was guilt by association. And I think sometimes we can feel that way. Guilt by association. And so what we see here is that as followers of Jesus, we share in Christ's mission in two ways. The first, we share in Christ's mission as the unbiased and true physician. Jesus says, and Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus comes for the sick, the sinners in need of repentance. That is who Jesus has come. That means that he's called his followers into the presence of those who are sick. The greatest disease that you have is not cancer, fungal heart infections, the flu, COVID, ALS. The greatest disease that we all have is sin. And Jesus is the unbiased and true physician. He does not look out and say, Oh, There is none of you here, or there is one of you here that is unsavable. He doesn't care where you have come from. He doesn't care what sin you have done. He doesn't care what your background is and how grotesque it may be. If you come to Jesus in repentance, He is offering you the same grace of the person who passively walks by in quiet and subtle rebellion. Both sins leading to death. The murderer and the subtly rebellious alike are headed down the same place with the same consequence, eternal death apart from God. And yet Jesus comes to rescue. Now, Jesus is not calling the Pharisees righteous here. When they ask him a question, he's playing into their hard-heartedness and their blindness See, someone who does not see their own sickness has no desire for a doctor. The Pharisees only saw the outward and they only looked upon the outward to say that that person is sick. They judged the sickness by what they were doing outwardly. So the Pharisees felt that they were pious. They were fasting, they were observing these rituals and laws and trying to do them to the best of their own perfection. They failed to see that the law was created not so that it might save, but it might expose our inability to live righteously. The Pharisees saw no need for a doctor. They were blinded to their own sin. You see, people don't need a doctor who don't believe that they're sick. And sometimes they know that they're sick, But they ignore it because the cost of going to the doctor is either too painful or too much of a burden to see one. For some of us, we can feel that same way. The cost of running to the Savior rather than staying in the mire and mud that we're in is too great. Jesus is calling you to a place of repentance. Jesus is calling each of us to a place of repentance through in Him. You see, Jesus doesn't discriminate between sinners. He is the unbiased true physician offering salvation to all who come and follow Him through faith. It is the reason the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12-16, through 16, I thank Him who has given me strength, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What is the purpose that he's called us to? To expose Jesus' perfect, patient mercy in us. That's what he's called us to. And here's the thing if all I'm doing is being with people who believe the same thing, I am not displaying that to anyone. God has called me to come into the culture to be his witnesses for his truth. I am not to draw backwards, but I am to draw nearer. That's what he wants. That's what he's seeking from us is to come in and to no longer avoid the culture, but to engage with it in Christ. Kent Hughes points out that the radical, regenerating work of Christ sours when redeemed people lose sight of their continuing need, when they forget that though their eternal future is secure in their daily walk, they are frail and needy. The church can easily become a self-righteous subculture with no room or sympathy for sinners. This is a real danger in the evangelical church. We have been gloriously saved, but are we seeing ourselves as we really are? That we are in need of the Savior in the same way that the world is in need of the Savior. And although we experience salvation, we need to go to Him daily in submission, hour by hour, minute by minute. And the same way that we were saved and the same one who saved us is needed by others and we have been called to be his witness. A new way. No longer separate from the culture believing that sinners make us unclean but seeing that Jesus is the one who cleanses and makes us clean. And it is not our culture or surrounding that makes us unclean but it is Christ who does the cleansing work. It is the heart that is unsubmitted to Jesus that makes us unclean. The Pharisees then ask another accusing question here. It says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now the disciples of John the Baptist fasted in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. The Pharisees, on the other hand, their fasts were to show people how much they were suffering for God. They used religious expression as a validation of what they saw as godliness. So if they just followed these rituals, then they were right before God. It's kind of like saying, well, I read my Bible today, therefore I'm good with God. I prayed today, therefore I'm good with God. Rather than seeing what God wants from us is a communal relationship in which we are submitting to Him every day, allowing the Spirit to work in us. So many of us try to put rules in place in our life that make us feel better about our relationship with the Lord, and yet what the Lord really wants is He wants submission. And so part of that submission is going to be reading His Word, yes, and is going to be prayer. But it's not the method That brings us into relationship with Jesus. It's the heart, the submission and surrender to Him. And so, our fasting, which Jesus says will come later, because now we live in a place where we have the presence of the Spirit in our lives, but we also have a time in which He'll return. And our fasting is not out of a position of mourning, but it's out of a position of joy. You see, the Pharisees, says in Matthew 6, 16 through 18, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the second aspect, then, of this mission that we share in with Jesus is the joy-producing and present bridegroom. Jesus is the joy-producing and present bridegroom. It says, and Jesus said to them, this is to the Pharisees, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You see, Jesus comes to bring celebration and joy through his presence. There was no celebration and joy in the law. If all you have is a law that is not attainable in the flesh, but through painful self-denial and work and imperfection, one day you do it, the next day you don't. Constantly offering sacrifices. Think of the burden. Where was the joy in actually following Christ or following God? Following the law was a burden that actually brought mourning, not necessarily joy. And if we understand the law correctly, being God's perfect law for us, what he desires for our holiness and righteousness, the law then shows us why we can't do that on our own and how it is impossible to do it on our own. I mean, think about dieting for a second, it's not a sin. But think about how hard it is to stay on that diet for even a month, let alone for a week, right? And now, my position before the Lord is based upon my ability to keep this law, which says, oh, by the way, don't covet. Whatever you look at, don't ever long for that if it's not yours. Uh, well, we've all failed right? The law exposes our inability to be righteous. That's what its purpose was. It was never to be a saving work. And so Jesus is the joy-producing bridegroom Now, as the bridegroom, he's reminding us of the new relationship we have with him as his church. A wedding at this time was a time of celebration and joy. In fact, rabbinic law actually prevented fasting at weddings so as, quote, to not lessen joy. To not lessen joy. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm here. You have joy now. This new mission that I have, is actually shared in the fact that you are, I'm the unbiased and true physician, and I'm the joy producing bridegroom. When we come to Christ, there is joy. Now, I love John Piper, but I do not like his term Christian hedonism. And the reason why is joy is different than happiness. There are lots of things that we are going to experience in this life where we have the joy of the Lord, the life of the Lord, the celebration of the Lord, but we are not necessarily happy. Can I celebrate on a hospital bed? Yes. Can I celebrate through difficult family circumstances? Yes. Can I celebrate when I experience the consequence of my sin but know my redemption is in Christ? Yes. Joy-producing presence. That's who Jesus is. Revelation 19, 6-8, I love this. It says then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, "Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, that is the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." That's awesome. There is celebration because Christ is our Savior. Christ is our groom. And He has made us ready as His bride. You see, the Pharisees mistakenly viewed their fasting as the marker of their relationship with God. But as Galatians 5, through 23 points out, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. It's not fasting. It's not even prayer. The fruit of the Spirit actually is being produced in the heart, and it is a result of that fruit that we begin to pray, and we begin to fast in obedience to the Lord. Warren Wiersbe points out that life is a feast, not a famine or a funeral, and Jesus Christ is the only one who can make that kind of difference in our lives. Do we see our life in Christ as a feast and not a fast? And what do I mean by that? Are we grateful for what God has called us into and excited for that call, or do we keep looking backwards going, I wish I wasn't a Christian and I could participate in that sin? Do we live looking back at the sinful life, desiring it, even dancing with it, even trying to find it, going, I think I'd be happier if I could do these things over here? Or do we celebrate the newness that we have in Jesus? That's what he's calling us to. The Christian life is a feast, not a fast. And if we're living our life, seeing the Christian life of the fast, we are missing the beauty of the gospel, that God has opened our eyes to the truth. He's allowing us to see who he is, and he's allowing us to experience his redemption. Therefore, that should call us into and rejoice over the newness of life, not look back and go, man, I wish I sure could participate in the past. At that point, we become nothing like the Israelites who are standing in the wilderness, looking backward at Egypt, saying, I hope to get back to there one day. So there's two things that then are essential to understand. The first is this, that Jesus comes to establish a new way, grace, rather than fix the old way, the law. Jesus comes to establish a new way, grace, rather than to fix the old way, the law, We're told here, he also told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Jesus didn't come to patch up the old way. The new garments will tear and it won't match is what it says. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's grace. That's the new covenant found in Jesus. Because, why? Because he is our bridegroom. And He has written His law on our heart through His Spirit. No longer is it teaching one to another that is imperfect, but it is the Spirit who teaches us in Jesus. It is the Spirit who convicts our hearts and our minds. It is the Spirit who moves us to submit and strengthens us to submit. And it is in His grace that we are strengthened. He uses the second parable dealing with wineskins here. It says this new wine cannot be contained in old wineskins. And what is this new wine? Well, that new wine is grace and all of the blessings that cannot be contained in the law. You see, joy overflowing in grace would burst the wineskin of the law. The law would keep pushing us back and pushing us back and pushing us back as we try to do it in our flesh and as we try to walk it out. And there would be no more joy. There would be only mourning because we'd see our inability to ever walk this law out perfectly. But in grace, we have joy, knowing that Jesus has already come to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says, "'Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. "'I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. "'For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, "'not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished.'" Here is what Jesus did. Jesus came and he took the rightful punishment that was ours for sin, which was death. He went to the cross as a perfect lamb, as the sinless man, and he bore that sin upon us. He died. And on the third day, God raises him from the death, overcoming the power of death. And in his call to repent and believe, What he is calling is he is calling us to turn from our sin to confess him as Lord in essence and to believe in him for our salvation. That he has fulfilled the law perfectly. He has done it righteously. Every single command he has lived perfectly. And he says now you take on my blood. You'll never do it on your own but I've given you myself so that you might have life in me eternally. Isn't that good news? That's what he's done. He's saying, stop doing it yourself. Rest in me. Second Corinthians 5, 17 adds, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I am no longer destined to my own flesh, but I am now powerful in Christ in me. David Guzik puts it well when he says, Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. This is what salvation is all about. In doing this, Jesus doesn't destroy the old, the law, but he fulfills it just as an acorn is fulfilled when it grows into an oak tree. There is a sense in which the acorn is gone, but its purpose is fulfilled In greatness. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And then finally, that second thing that we need to be essential to understand is that those who find comfort in the old way will reject the new way. Those who find comfort in the old way will reject the new way. If you are seeking to do things on your own apart from Jesus, know that you are rejecting him. If you are looking for answers to what God is calling you to by trying to find it in your flesh rather than finding it in Him, you are rejecting Him. If you are looking at the gospel today and you were saying, I don't think I need that, I'm a good person. I'll figure it out. Maybe I'll do 100 good, good things and 99 bad things and I'll encounter and live with Christ eternally. You are rejecting The new way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father through me. The new way is the only way. My desire for us, as we mentioned last week, is that we would begin last week as we talked about being catchers of men. And today, as we look at this mission in Christ to be engaged in the culture, but not of the culture is that we would, as a body, begin to pray individually for one person in our sphere of influence who doesn't know Christ. Pray that God would soften their hearts, that he would make their hearts no longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. Midway through next month, middle of October, then we're going to start talking about, I want us to move from prayer to intentionality, to saying, yep, yep, This person I've been praying for, I'm now going to invite them into my life. I'm going to start engaging with them on a regular basis so that they can see Christ in me. My engagement is not one of pursuing sin with them. My engagement of one is enjoying them and walking in righteousness so that they might see Jesus in me. As I continue to pray for the opportunity to express the gospel to them, both in word and deed. As a church, we can't be complacent on this. As a church, we need to invite the lost into our lives because that is the mission that God has given us. To be set apart in holiness through Jesus, not from the culture. And to be in the culture as his witness for Jesus so that the world might know him. Let's pray. Lord God, you are gracious, and your call is wonderful, but we acknowledge, God, that this call and this mission can be scary, especially in a culture that differs so much from us. But Lord, you have experienced that. You have experienced the hostility of a culture who has rejected you, and yet you went forward and you called your disciples into it. May we be powerful through your grace in that same calling May we not be afraid to go. May we lay it down for you and may we go with boldness into this culture. May we see you as the only real, true physician who's unbiased, who can bring healing to the sick, to sinners, and who brings joy and presence. Father, may we not seek to serve you on our own, but may we seek to serve you with you leading us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.